When I moved here, I went from being um, the successful white guy to being a, uh, a newcomer, an immigrant, a Latino that had to prove itself. We can see the transformation in a way that, that very few groups can because we have had some things that we lost. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Adoptive Citizen Podcast. I'm Yona Filip, Executive Creative Director, Adoptive Citizen of the United States and Europe. And my guest today is no other than PJ Pereira, Creative Chairman and Co-Founder of Pereira and Odell. PJ needs no introduction in the advertising world. He's an advertising and entertainment pioneer and one of the world's most influential and respected creatives. He was named the top CCO on Edwig's Creative 100 list, honored on Creativity's Creativity 50, serving as an Ed Council board member and mentioned on the four A's, 100 people who make advertising great list. He's a multiple online Grand Prix winner and has served three times as a conjury chair. His agency was also the first to win an Emmy for a branded series competing against regular programming. The series was called Beauty Inside and was created for Intel. He has co-authored The Art of Branded Entertainment, an Amazon bestseller available worldwide in both digital and paperback. Most recently, PJ and his agency played a significant role in the launch of an ad council campaign centered around immigration and the sense of belonging calling on people to be more empathetic to those who feel like they do not belong. In addition, PJ's personal and professional commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion within the advertising, marketing, and media industry has been a key priority. PJ is Brazilian-born and lives with his family in the United States. Welcome to The Adoptive Citizen. This is episode one. I mean, I just can tell you how excited I am to have you here, PJ. I wanted to start the first episode with a creative. But not just any creative. I wanted to start this series with you. So just thank you so much for being here. It means a lot to me, and I'm sure it means a lot to every immigrant creative out there that wants to know your story coming to the United States. It's an honor. It's an honor to be there. So it, this is, I think that for all immigrants in this country, the idea of, of being proud and, and wearing the colors of your your origins and everything it be, is becoming more important and so the, the this is a great opportunity for me to put my colors out even if it's just in audio knowing you i know this is going to be a very open and candid conversation about your own journey as an immigrant in the united states so i'm very excited to get this going you're extremely successful today but i'm sure it has not all been a smooth ride so why don't we start there how was it for the great PJ Pereira to move to the United States? What was your experience? Like? So it, it's, it's a very interesting journey. And, and during the last year or so, I've learned so much about so many things because of all the conflicts that, that, that my path represents. It's kind of, it's, it's mind boggling, mind blowing sometimes, but it's imagine that, that I, I'm, I've been here for 15 years. Right. And, and, when I left Brazil, I had a company there, like like 400 people working for me, and and um, I had a pretty good path. But then then in the advertising business, a lot of the the big campaigns are international, or the the the, the top of of my my most senior client in Brazil would still respond to um, report still report to someone in in the U.S. 
that would have to prove anything big. So I felt like at some point I, I decided that, you know, maybe I should just move and work at the source so I don't have to get things approved by someone else other than the person I'm talking to. So that was the, the impulse that led me to, to move. Uh, that and a combination of that and, and violence in Brazil that we can talk more if if, if needed. But I, I was I was starting to get really anxious about the the situation of violence there. But then when I moved here, I went from being um, the successful white guy to being a uh, a newcomer, an immigrant, a Latino that had to prove itself. There was you know it was funny because so many things happened to reinforce that. At that year, I was the president of the jury of the Cannes Festival. That is the most important festival uh, in the advertising business, right? So, like, people, the, the top people in the industry are invited to be judges. And that year, I was the president of one of the juries, the youngest president ever. So, I was feeling like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, this is the right moment to, to that I go with so much respect. The respect that I anticipated wasn't there. I was one of the top People in Brazil, and Brazil is a key market, but here you're nobody. You have to prove yourself again. You have to prove that you're you're good enough for the American market, and that was such a shock. And and I I, I understand the the perspective, but it was such a counterproductive conversation to have, such an aggressive way of welcoming someone. And it wasn't even by a boss or anyone. It was someone that worked in another department that was really checking how I would do in a, in a kind of passive aggressive or even aggressive aggressive way, which for San Francisco is pretty hard. That was kind of, that's how I started. San Francisco is very, very mellow and very liberal city that, that's proud of its, of how open it is. Not, not that much, you know, arriving there was pretty traumatizing in, in the way that, that, that some people kind of talked to me and, and how they challenged me from, yeah, you're good. You're good for, for, Brazil. It may even good for the rest of the world, but this is America. You have to be another play on another level here. And that one conversation just just got me out off my game for almost a year. Interesting. As you were talking about your expectations moving to the United States, knowing that you've been so successful in Brazil, having been a chair of the Khan Lion jury. And you know, you as I said, you had different expectations when you moved. And then, you know, you had to prove yourself again to people. And it's interesting. It got me thinking about the imposter syndrome because I think a lot of people would, will resonate to this. When, when I came for the first time in Chicago to interview, they put me in this nice hotel across the river. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but I was sitting there in front of the window at 5 a.m., extremely jet-lagged, looking at the high-rises and the river and just acknowledging the fact where I am. And it made me think, why have they picked me? You know, why go to the extra length of bringing me there when, you know, it's such a huge country, it's such a huge city. And that sentiment, when you first move abroad, you know, you, you carry it with you for a long time because you want to prove yourself. And everything is changing so fast that you don't know that you're good enough. And it's a it's a feeling you carry with you for a long time. So I was wondering, did you ever experience that feeling? Did you ever have the feeling you're not yeah, good it, enough? Yeah, for me, it, it manifested more. Um, it was a combination of being there. I'm 
I'm not up to the challenge. I'm not mm-hmm. good enough because I'm feeling dumb. And there were some moments that that felt like it's it's like a a you know like a small town the the classic movie thing scene of a small town small town person that just go, arrives in New York and looks at those tall buildings and feel like oh my god this is so we are so educated by the entertainment industry that America is this amazing place that is where everything happens and everything I was always fascinated when when I had a chance of being uh, being it, it, like the, the it's funny the receptions of the buildings were were massively intimidated for me more than the meetings at my first meeting one of my biggest clients today is in Anheuser Busch in bed right my first meeting at Anheuser Busch in St. Louis I could barely speak because the moment I walked into the reception there and I looked at these giant bronze eagle, like with his wings spread, kind of staring at me. And it's like, oh my God, I'm I'm inside of Budweiser. And I froze. I was starstruck. So that's that is a, a real thing that I don't I'm I don't I'm not sure that Americans real realize the, the power of of and the weight of of that feeling and and if they knew it and worked a little kind of helped people make put people at ease a little bit it'll be um it'll be much better mm-hmm. yeah i think very few realize just how intimidating all this new information you're getting in the united states is to an individual actually i was reading an article that maybe as much as 50 percent of expatriates going to some sort of form of depression when they first move into their new country. I personally gained weight. This is how the move looked on me. And I'm curious, even with your background, even with your confidence, how was it for you and your family when you moved? How was this transitioning period for you guys? I I would say that I was absolutely blessed and and lucky with the the way that my transition help happened i mean what you're describing is kind of what i've been through as well i gained weight i was feeling depressed i was feeling dumb because people don't realize how language is a big part of your of your thoughts right so when you arrive in the country it's i i would i would have headaches every day because how much energy i had to spend to to understand people and to make things more complicated i'm half deaf i have zero hearing in one year so it's understanding people in another language when you cannot read their lips, you cannot kind of understand half of what they're saying based on the position and everything is tough. And then, but in the beginning, you you start to get there because you kind of, you you listen and you translate in your head and then you think and then you translate again and you say it. So you're slow, but you yep. can do it. But there's a point that the languages flip. They, it's the point that I remember that is clearly the, the point that I started to dream in English. So there was one moment that English became the language that I was thinking, which I was so happy when that happened. Like, okay, now I'm thinking in English. When I, I start a thought, it comes in English already. So it's taking over my Portuguese. Yes, that's great. But that also means that you are, you're, you're dumb for a while because you don't have the language resources 
to build the thought the way you you used to. Mm. Yeah. And so I was I was literally I was much I was fifty percent dumber than than I was before or half as smart, whatever you want. So I couldn't, my thought process wasn't as strong and, and it wasn't as, as smooth and wasn't even the speed is that I, I couldn't get to the same conclusions that I, I used to get before. So I, I, a friend of mine, a Japanese friend of mine told me, it's like, yeah, it's, it's tough, but this is the trick. You have to learn to think in small bites and be very concise, concise on the way you're thinking and very conceptual in the way you're thinking. So you use less words in the thought process and the expression of those thoughts. And I started to, to use that, which is a very Japanese way of thinking, he told me. But I started to, to use the Japanese trick and, and it changed the way I thought and I started to use that more and more. Which is very funny because today, if I have a problem and I try to solve it thinking in English, is going to, I'm going to get to a different idea or a different conclusion than if I take the same problem and, and tackle that thinking in Portuguese. <laughs> I have a different kind of intelligence. I have a different personality. I, I'm a different person. When I'm writing, I can feel it, it's totally different. My, my writing in Portuguese is, um, is way harsher. My writing in, in English is more innocent in a way. Mm. And because I have to, I, I don't have the cliches of the language. And so I, I don't have any expression that I can count on. So I, I make stuff up and people look at me, oh, that's pretty nice way of saying it. It's like, it's the only way I don't have, how do you say it? They will give me an expression. Oh, we say it like this. If I don't have that expression, I have to make that up. <laughs> you know, we talked about the feeling of not being good enough. But what about trying to look like somebody or not? I recently read an article that as much as two-thirds of people who go for a job interview, they fake accents. And I think at one point, for sure, I try to seem more American. Maybe even now I'm trying, just because it's a podcast, I'm trying to look, to, to sound more American. And I wonder if you've ever tried that in an effort to become more integrated within the American society? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of that has to do with the way I look and trying to dress more kind of according to the code. And, and, and there's some, some mannerisms and some ways that you learn to behave because kind of the, 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 the way people behave in the business setting in Brazil and, and in America is very different. Um, but the accent is one thing that I, I had never been able to fake. You know, so I, I know that I can, I can pretend to be enough of an, there's some tricks that I can play and I can use to, to look a little bit American until the moment I open my mouth, because usually not only the accent is there, but my hands are to move with it. So it's, <laughs> it's impossible to, to fake it. And, and, and I remember talking to my partner once. If like I think I'm gonna do talk to a speech therapist to see if I can get rid of my accent, and he said, "No, no, 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 don't do it. Your accent is actually one of the the things that makes you different, and you should you should keep it." And I always look back and feel like, oh, "Okay, but it's just so annoying to have to deal with that." The combination of having an accent and the way I speak and my my Latin um, way of expressing myself is even. In the in a bad situations, it still still annoys me. I can't tell how many meetings I have that I I I 
try to sell an idea. I may spend like one hour making a point and I look at the person, the person is looking at me back with a big smile and, and I'll say, okay, you get, you like what I just presented. And the person just looks at me and it's like, I love how passionate you are, passionate you are. And, and I thought, oh, he didn't listen to a single word of what I'm saying. It was just kind of just looking at my hands moving and how enthusiastic I was. <laughs> and I just missed an entire hour trying to sell because that, that person wasn't paying attention. And, and they don't do that out of malice or you know, they are actually fascinated by something strange and different, but it's hard to, to, it's, it's, it's still a setback, still mm-hmm. a, a problem I have to deal with. And it's not, I mean, it's a, a little problem compared to the, the kinds of problems that you can deal with by being different, but it's just an example of how the little things can, can build up and they, they compound yeah. and, and make life very different from, from depending on who you are. I want to stop for a second mm-hmm. and talk about stereotypes. I think there's so much stereotyping, no matter where you're coming from, you're going to be affected by some sort of stereotyping. I've been stereotyped several times, maybe not so much in the United States, because Romania is so far away and you know, people have been more welcoming to me. But I've been stereotyped a lot in Europe. And, you know, for those who are not familiar with the kind of stereotyping Romanians have in Europe, we have it pretty bad. (laughs) There's a huge Romanian community in France, Germany, the UK, and Italy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's in those countries that we usually get a lot of bad stereotyping. And I remember this particular time I was in the Carline Festival. We were having lunch with a friend and I offered to pay for lunch. And I, you know, I asked for the bill and I hand my card to the waiter and the card reads Transylvania Bank, right? It's a bank in Romania and it's the bank I had at the time. And the waiter picks up my card, looks at it and says, are you Romanian? I say, yeah. Uh... Are you sure this is your card? I mean, what do you mean? Are you sure it's your card and you've not stolen it? And I looked at the guy and I couldn't believe what he's saying. Like, I I didn't know if it's a joke, if he's for real. And it's one of those situations where, (laughs) quite frankly, you don't don't even know how to react. And I'm curious if you remember a situation like that where you were just Mm -hmm. amazed by the stereotyping and the lack of awareness that that person has that he's stereotyping you it's it's mostly outside of of the industry in the industry was in the beginning the very beginning there was this feeling of uh, this this 100% of the time i felt like i was being challenged people were kind of measuring me and saying oh, okay are you good enough and but after a while i i kind of proved what i could do and then it changed but i remember kind of going to buy a car my buy my my second car because the first one I, I i bought whatever i could afford in the beginning kind of and and was fine but the the, the next one i was kind of buying a, a better car i went to the dealer and i i said i can i take a look at that car and the guy looked at me saying do you know how much it costs I'm like yeah i know i saw the price I'm like you can't you can buy it I'm like, yeah 
and and he could tell that I I I wasn't American immediately, right? And he said, "Okay, what do you do?" If I work in advertising, like, oh, I thought you were like a drug lord or something. Hmm. I looked at the guy, like, you're really telling me this, and he was making a joke and he was kind of laughing and like, yeah, let's go there see the car. Like, no, no, thank you. And I went to the next guy and kind of called him and and I went there and bought the car right next to him and he didn't get his commission because of his stupid joke. But that's a, a, uh, it's just a little example, but like when I get at airports, especially during these kind of these last few years, no matter, no matter, you know, if I I came here originally with an O1 status that is for exceptional people and their, their fields and everything. So it's like a, 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 is a, a visa for highly regarded for is it, they, the way they say this is the people that we want in. So we are actually trying to make you feel comfortable coming here. It's an exceptional visa and everything. Every time I get to the airport, they say, oh, you're Brazilian. You're having, you have this. So what is this? So I'll get, I got used to having to go to the waiting room, even and especially on the last four years, I, I was already a, a citizen. But every now and then I'll arrive in the country. I have my citizen. I'll, show the, the my american passport they would still send me to to that that room and i'll say there they would look at my passport give it to someone else they look at my passport again look at someone and then i'll stay there for one hour my son and my wife outside my son really worried because the police got his father and everything and then they would just release me later because all right okay you're good okay they just terrified a kid for no reason whatsoever just because uh, the way it look is like airport is probably the 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 most traumatizing parts of this i'm always getting caught on these random selection with the at the 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 metal detectors and stuff like that it's kind of very funny how i must have some um metal my maybe my my iron count in my blood is too high or something Uh, but i'm always randomly picked and and um and the other thing that i remember noticing very clearly is that between my first car and my second car it was a complete different experience i i had a a car my first car was a more of a popular brand because you know i when you come you don't have credit so you have to buy the car cash you cannot make any you can't get you don't have credit so you cannot buy you cannot finance anything so i had to buy my first car credit uh cash so i bought a kind of a less expensive car and I was driving there and I was being pulled by police the whole time. Every week or two, I'll be getting pulled by police. But I'm, I wasn't speed. I was like, no, just let me check and everything. Okay, you're good to go. For no reason, no apparent reason, I just wanted to check something. Uh, the day that I, I switched to a more, I got my credit, I got an, a new car. It was a fancier car and everything. I stopped being stopped which is a, a very interesting mm-hmm. um, realization that, that color and your social status is so ingrained and so, so associated with this, the feeling of power and your financial status. That mm-hmm. is, it's fascinating and heartbreaking at the same time because thankfully I was raised and and I was I had my whiteness all the way to my late 20s to count on, on to build my to build my um my my net worth and build my education and be all, so I could count on all my privileges of being white 
up to the point that I went, I moved to America. The moment I moved to America, I became a Latino. And, and the funny thing is that if I am in the context of, of, of the advertising world where um, there is a status attached to it because I'm an agency owner, I have my own business, I have big clients and everything, it comes with a recognition of power so people see me as white, right? It's, yeah. I, I'm a white foreigner. When I'm outside of the agency, I'm treated as non-white. I'm treated as a Latino. I, I remember being going to a martial arts studio because I'm I'm I always practice martial arts. So I I recently started to to learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu because it's kind of a Brazilian thing. I wanted to never learn it, so I wanted to learn that. And uh, and and one of the the instructors that I was talking to, he asked me, "So how do you feel about being taught by a white guy?" And for, all right, when, when someone looks at you and say, how do you feel about, about being taught by a white guy? Because you're not white, you're Brazilian. And he could, okay, I'm not, for him, I'm not white. For, the, for my advertising friends, especially in the agency context, I am white. Because I'm doing these, these thing with, um, with the ad club in the Andes this year that, that I'm president of the jury. And I, I wanted to build a very diverse group of people and I was talking to a friend at the agency say hey this is one of the most diverse juries I've ever seen because if you look at American white men in a jury of 30 there are only three people three American white men and she looked at me and said you know that you're white right and I kind of laughed at her, like Kind of, sometimes. I maybe in this circumstance I am, but I'm still Latino. I'm still, I'm still a foreigner that has to deal with it. So I'm like in this in-between zone that I'm white, but I'm not. I'm Latino, a Latino white, but I, so sometimes I'm treated differently. Sometimes not. So it's a very confusing situation. But made me appreciate and understand. I would say 30% or 20% of the struggle of people that, that have to do with their non-whiteness because I can see the conflict. I can see in my own skin, in my own life, the difference between being treated with privilege and being treated without that privilege. And it's like, oh, I don't have that anymore. So the, the feeling of losing your privilege is a big eye-opening to understand. And, and in a certain ways, the privilege itself. It's like I, I can learn about the, the discussions around the, happening in the world right now better than most people that were raised white because I lost some of my whiteness. Not all of it, but some of it, I lost it. And, and so I'm, I'm, a privilege, I'm privileged in terms of how fast I can learn and, and understand the, the, my, my lack of awareness, you know? Mm -hmm. I do think self-awareness is such an important part of the integration process. And it goes both ways, right? Like it's about you accepting the new society and the society accepting the new you. But what about the cultural differences? If you could go back in time, what are some of those differences that you've noticed the, f the very first moments you spent in the United States? Maybe the first week, maybe the first month. Like, I particularly remember a, kind of a ridiculous thing. Like, I remember one of the first thing I noticed was that in Chicago, people don't say hello in elevators. Like, I can't even imagine New York. And at the beginning, I, I, I thought it's rude. You know, I see these people every day and they don't say hello. And then after a couple of months, I realized that elevators are like buses. You wait for one every day and you wait quite a while. And then it's always packed and 
there's so many elevators you take that you're not going to say hello to everyone. Like if you don't say hello to every single person in a bus, why would you say hello to every single person in an elevator? It was such an eye-opening moment for me. And I wonder, you know, what are some of those moments that you remember? Like the very first things that were a bit of a cultural shock to you. Um, what are some of those moments? There, there are three different moments that, that I that I remember. One was that my first meeting after I arrived here, uh, I, it was with a Scottish, an Irish, and a girl from New York. And I was in California. So imagine, uh, again, that context, I feel like I'm arriving as I, I thought it was a big shot and president can and everything. I come in and I study English my entire time. I, I thought that I, I had perfect English. And then the Scottish guy said something and I still don't know what it was. And the girl, the, the, the New York girl said something and I had no idea what she said. And then the Irish guy looked at me and said, what, so when you finish here, what is your hoist? And for hoist, what is a hoist? Your hoist, where you live. It's like hoist. And it took me a week to understand that hoist was house. So just being thrown in a place with so many accents was like, oh, shit, this is going to be tough. That's the day that, like, oh, it's not going to be easy as I thought. Um, that day you're talking about the elevator. San Francisco is a funny place because right? there's, there's a foreigner that arrives in a country, but there's also the culture of the city. Like the same way that New York is a scary place for me um, because everything is fast and moving. So if I, I'm, I don't hear well. So sometimes I, people say, tell me something, say something to me, and I have to ask them to repeat. Here in New York, people scream at you if you ask what, right? In, in San Francisco, they say, no, 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 we are much nicer here. But it's a kind of a passive aggressive niceness that is funny. I remember getting to a building and walk, opening the door, the outside door to get in the building, this long hallway, the elevator at the very end. And I walked there, and the person in the elevator kind of held the door for me. And as I kind of waved, thank you, and I started to walk there. And the person looked at me with the meanest face ever, as if like, why are you not running? I'm here waiting, holding the door to the elevator for you. You should run. It's like, <laughs> that's not being nice. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's, I, I need to understand an entirely new code for, for this thing. And the, the other and the, it's a one week later, I had to I had a meeting in New York. I think I never told the story. It's kind of, it's actually traumatized me a little bit. Now I can laugh about it. So I was invited to judge a uh, an award show um, in in New York. It was basically the um, the Hispanic advertising show. And I looked at a bunch of stuff and, and I looked at everything. And I remember seeing one, one piece of it. I said, this is amazing. Car as a, like a Christmas car. Then it, it sounded, the melody was great. And they talked about one person from another department. And, getting, and, and the, the song started simple and got more and more complicated. I was fascinated by it. It's beautiful. So this is the winner. And then the, the organizer of the festival said, okay, you're so sure. It's so quick. Yeah, that's great. And, and at the, the ceremony, I awarded that, and everyone looked at me and said, why did you pick that winner? It's, it's so, such an odd choice. If I know it's a beautiful song, the melody is great, the way that they build and the way that the, the, the lyrics builds up, it was, it's br really brilliant. 
and then it was the end of the year. Then the the the, the next year came, and kind of Christmas songs started to to pop up. And then I realized that the song that the 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 song that I thought it was brilliant was just a parody of Twelve Days of Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, basically, I thought it was the, a, the, a beautiful composition was the biggest cliche of all. And I awarded that because I had no context. And, and that's, that's the embarrassing and the beauty of being a foreigner, that you, you can look at everything with fresh eyes and you say, oh, okay, that's a pretty nice song. <laughs> It's an invisible struggle. Yeah. That's like because there, there, there's the the visible part of it, but there's the invisible part that that not the the perpetrator, not the person suffering from it, can actually notice. I done a research a few like a year ago with um, human resources professionals in the in the advertising industry to understand how they deal with foreigners. In my case, I did these little tests with Brazilian foreigners only. And look how interesting this is. So I asked them, so I asked HR people everywhere in agencies, so how do you see uh, Brazilian foreigners, Brazilian um, transplants when you hire them? And they all, they all said the same thing. Oh, they're so difficult, it's so hard because they don't understand the system here. They all want people to, to take care of things for them and I'm not their assistant and everything. And then I interviewed their bosses, so like the creative people hiring them and so how, what do you feel about them? It's like, oh my God, you're so great. They're so hard workers. They, 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 work, they, they work nonstop. They're so passionate about this business that it's like you never need to tell a Brazilian advertising person to work because they always, they're always take initiative and everything and they even leave their personal stuff behind and they now they have to then they have to I have to tell them go take care of your life because you're just working too much and everything and they do not realize that that's part of the same thing the same reason why the creative director is happy that that person is such a hard worker is a thing that makes that person leave their their personal things on the side and not take care of them that the HR person is complaining about. So the reason why that person is good for the company is the reason why that company is complaining about them. And ultimately, when you go talk to Brazilians, that's why we, we hear, oh, so uh, in Brazil, I'm so used to, I, you, you get hired by the company, the company take care, takes care of all the paperwork for you, and you, don't, you just go there and, and start to do the work, right? Because that's what you're hired to do. And when they arrive here, nothing is taken care of. You have to take care of everything. So there's this conflict that, the Brazilians are waiting, are expecting the company to take care of something. And they don't know that the company, the people in charge of the paperwork, they don't, they, right. they don't know, they, they don't know of each other's expectations. So the Brazilians, they're being hired, don't know that they're, that, that no one knows that they're, your expectation, the, 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 the hires, the, the HR people, they don't know that the Brazilians are coming from expecting that people are gonna be taking care of these. So there's no conversation. And because they don't talk, they can never solve the problem. Mm. Of course, this is particular to Brazilians. And I'm not saying that everyone goes through that, but there's, there's a variant of that for every nationality where the, the American culture and their local culture clash in a way that is unsurmountable because they just don't know the, that the difference exists. Mm. And if they don't know the difference exists, they cannot 
talking through. Oh, oh, that's all it is. Okay, we can take care of this. They don't know. It took me a year to understand that that I had to buy a car almost cash when I arrived here, so I could build credit, so right. I could get a. Uh, because if I if you buy a car paying sixty percent cash, the dealer will will sell you the car, and that's how you build your credit for the first time. Americans don't know that building credit if yeah. you arrive as an adult is impossible. <laughs> so no one tells you that. And they don't don't help you get out of the, the simple struggle by giving you that advice. So I and 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 the the I think that because some people can actually enjoy watching you struggle because they feel like oh, it's a way to to take the oh take the upper hand a little bit. It makes things it, it creates a mean situation that's like, you know, there's an unnecessary struggle for every foreigner that that could have been easy to, to overcome if more conversations are had. And that's when you realize how the differences of perspective and how you where you come from and, and the way you look and the, the your 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 cultural references, how important they are and how much you people tend to be unaware of their privileges and, and their their circumstances. They just don't know that that things that you take for granted are a big struggle for someone else because you have no way of knowing you never never had to deal with that crap. Yeah. You're so right. Before I arrived I expected that the most difficult part is gonna be the moving part, right? Like just packing your stuff and and moving out. And um I was talking to a lot of people that were in the States already, and everybody told me, hey, you know what, the first couple of months, they're going to be tough, but th then everything's going to fit into places. And I thought it's about moving and finding a house and all that sort of stuff, but it turns out it was all about paperwork. But to me, it wasn't so much about building credit. I kind of knew about it, but what broke me was right at the end, after I found a house, managed to open a bank account. And, you know, the leasing company this asks you to file for a new electricity contract before you move in. So I apply at ComEd and I'm trying to get a contract. And if you're an American citizen, you're thinking, well, what, what's so difficult, Joanna? You know, everything is online. It should be fairly easy. And yes, it's fairly easy if you're an American citizen. But if you're a foreigner, you need positive identification, which means documents that the government will not let you have, like a state ID or a driving license from the state you're living in. And here I am in front of a counter begging, literally begging the woman behind the counter to sign me up because all the documents that they were asking for positive identification were documents that the government would not let me have. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's amazing just how broke, in a sense, the system is by not allowing you to be able to to live the life you came here for, you know? It's like one of the biggest, uh, a lot of friends of mine complain, because in Brazil we have gigantic names, right? Mm. It's not like first name, middle initial, and last name. Like I have five names 
my brother has six, you know? So when you arrive here and you try to fill the, the documents, <laughs> you know, you have to abbreviate, you have to eliminate, and then you kind of try, okay, you get it. Then you go to the next one, they fly, you cannot abbreviate like that. They give another rule. And then all of a sudden you have two documents that use different names. Your social security and your passports have different names. And then you go take another, you go move to another state and you cannot renew your your. Um, your your driver's license because your social security and your passport names are different. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do. And they're like, oh, no, you cannot take your driver's license. You cannot take your ID and you cannot sign anything because uh, because your names are abbreviated differently into sources. If I, but it's your problem. So no, not my problem. It's, it's like the social, but if you're still the government, and for, I don't know, it's another, another branch of the government. <laughs> like this is, I'm in a Kafka book. It's like, it, it's, uh, it's horrible. The cruelty, the cruelty of bureaucracy is uh, the, for, for foreigners is fascinating. But I think that uh, HR is, is the next in line because the, their lack of sensitivity and lack of understanding is is heartbreaking. I remember asking, telling them, so like, I need advice on on this. What is the first day? For like, give me, tell me what kind of uh, health insurance you want. For like, oh, there are multiple choices. So where I come from, there's only one. So no, there's this HMO or PPO, and so this is benefit. Like, I don't know. It's like, and they look at you. It's like I cannot advise you because it's it's against the law. I cannot advise you. So like, no, but please, you know, you get get out of my room, talk to, get out of my office, talk to, talk to, talk to a friend, and let ask them to advise you because I can't. It's like all these these bureaucratic and legal rules that you have to deal with, and you cannot. It's like, oh, you cannot get your salary until you get your social security done, but you cannot get your social security for two months. Yeah. Once you arrive. So how do you survive? And it's like, oh, it's not my problem. It's yours. <laughs> like, oh, shit. <laughs> and yeah. no one, it, they just don't care. It's like, oh, no, that's your problem. So it's like the first few months are, are hell. The first year is horrible. And then it's hard to get better. So what's sad for me is a lot of my friends that came, they spent the first year here and they got so broken that they moved back. And I thought, like, don't do it. It's like the first year is the horrible one. Then it starts to get better. So you you just went through hell, and now that you can start to collect the, the benefits of being here, you're going back and find now. Yeah, I can't I can't do this anymore. So this country loses a, a lot of amazing talent just because it's not welcoming enough. No matter, not because it's it's like far right. We hate you, foreigners. It's a different kind of 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 animosity. It's bureaucratic animosity. Is unawareness to the struggle. That that sends people away when they're ready to benefit to to the community, to the companies, to the groups, and to the neighborhoods and society. That's when when they're ready to that they have been so crushed during the first twelve months that they give up and they come back. And that's when they they were ready to to make their real contribution. Yeah, I think we've shared quite a few insights that a lot of people listening will resonate to. So I want to talk now about Ed Council and the latest campaign you and your agency had an important role to play in. Um, it's a campaign that tries to raise awareness over the importance of accepting immigrants, you know, around us. And why don't you tell me a little bit about that and why is it important for 
Ad Council to launch such a campaign? The Ad Council is, is one of my my favorite things in this industry. My favorite parts of my job is, you know, I've been a board member at the Ad Council, I think, for six, seven years, I think. And they, they do so many important campaigns that for for big causes that matter and i was in a in a in a board meeting a, like a year and a half ago and and they announced that they were going to do an immigrant they were starting to prepare for an immigration campaign and i raised my hand and said this is mine no one touches it and and this is very personal i use my martial arts experience to say that if anyone wants to take it they're going to have to fight me and no one <laughs> no one challenged me that and with that so i i took that i've been working on and it's been a very strange time to talk about immigration it's because it's not only a hot topic but it's it's has so it's so charged and there's so much anger uh, related to that there of course there's so much passion in general there are a big chunk of the population that are absolutely for no matter what they they love immigrants they love the cause and everything and all right i don't need to talk to them there are people that no matter what they hate immigrants just because they're different and if like it's going to be a waste of my time to talk about that but there's these middle they're like hearing things from both sides if like i'm i was raised to be a nice person and to be welcoming, to be to treat people with respect and give them the benefit of the doubt and everything. But I'm hearing that they are here to take my job, to to change my culture, to transform this country into something that is not welcoming to me. So how can I deal with that? And and so we're actually trying to work with these group of people that are they're dealing with that that conflict in the middle. So that's why we did the entire campaign telling them, hey, you know, it's remember that feeling that when you were um when you you were in high school that you your first day you came to the cafeteria and there you had nowhere to sit because no one treated you as you belong there or remember when you got your first when you moved to a new job and then no one talked to you because you're the newcomer and and you felt like you didn't belong so uh, the life of an immigrant uh, for a lot of immigrants that's their entire lives so we can at least trigger people people's emotional response to one moment feel like, okay now i have to at least treat them with with some nice you need to uh, sometimes just a little smile or waving can change the the experience of a, of a person that is coming to this country and that was that was the the, the whole story that we were trying to tell and and we're be, the campaign has been very well received and and is making a dent on on these ugly times that we're living and a lot of people responding like okay now i understand it now i i can understand it much better at least what i should do and how i should treat people in terms of giving them the benefit of the doubt because I, I know the feeling now now i understand the feeling i understand what that person is going through and i don't want to cause that to anyone mm -hmm. so let's all relax and there was it was very um heartwarming to see it and i think that everything got even pushed to a new level and I, uh the day that i saw um, and that was a the transforming day for me to be honest and that's why your invitation was so important to me i was so excited about talking about all these the day that i saw kamala harris kind of making a speech regardless of your politics right and and um i, I remember seeing her going there and talking about her experience as as a an african-american woman as a black woman as a daughter of immigrants and everything and she wasn't talking about that as um 
as a handicap. She was talking about that with such pride. And that's when I realized that, hey, I've been here in this country for 15 years. I never talked with pride about my, my immigrants. Yeah. Right. I talk, I always either try to hide or try to kind of bypass it, talk about something else. And I never, I never treated that as, as pride of like, Hey, it's something that, you know, if I'm, if I'm here, despite of my nationality, my language and all the challenges that I go through, it's, I should speak of, I should talk about that with pride, not only to, not only as a, as a way of bragging and, and, and feeling better about myself, but especially because if I wave my my immigrant flag, regardless of where I come from, I'm actually giving a chance for more people that are immigrants as well to feel that they have a chance. Yeah. And when I saw her as a daughter of immigrants being uh, vice president-elect, and felt like, okay, my son has that chance. Yeah. And that was a big moment for me. So I, and I, I, I haven't, it was a sense of, I haven't performed, I haven't taken my duty seriously by avoiding it. And, and I've been um, holding these opportunities for other people to hear. So when you, when you invited me, I thought, of course I will, uh, of course I will talk about it. It's an honor and a privilege to, to be able to talk about this because I'm going to have, I'm pretty sure this, there will be some other immigrants re- listening to this and feel like, all right, I have a chance. Yeah, you do. You do have a chance. And, and despite of all problems, despite of all the ugliness of the political discourse, this country is still a, a, a place where we have a lot of opportunities and, and, and people like us can have a shot at building a good life for themselves. I, I agree. I think the moment Kamala Harris was sworn in, um, that moment was taken with a lot of pride by a lot of people. And I think it is important that successful people like you become more vocal about their journey, their story, their struggles. Because if more of us do that, perceptions will change slowly, slowly. And we can create a platform where other immigrants that are just starting their own journey can go to and and can find the inspiration and the strength they need to keep going and follow their path. And talking about success, I want to talk about PJ, the Brazilian, starting a business in the United States. I mean, it's hard enough as an immigrant to adapt to a new country or to work for an American company, never mind starting your own business. So I wonder if you could share a little bit about that success story. I because I had my agency in Brazil, I knew that the what the challenges are and how difficult it is and 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 the step that it took to 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 do it. So I spent my entire first year, first three years in in the country. I knew that I was going to to that I wanted to have my own company again. So I spent three years looking for the right partner. Like I need I knew that I needed to find to have an American partner, a person that that not only had better English than mine, but that had relationships and then and had American in my head had American muscle that mm-hmm. knew how things up were in this country to to balance my naivete. You know, it's like I I my naive look at at at, at 
how the world, how the country operates is an asset, but is also um, a handicap. So I needed someone that, that didn't have that handicap. So I spent the first three, year, three years looking for that person and who is that person going to be. And, and then it happened then when my company got sold in Brazil, it was three years after I moved, uh, it, it got sold to the same group that bought the company of the, the new business vice president and that, at, at AKQA, the guy that just became a president. He happened to have started one week before me. And when we, got, we were introduced to each other, we absolutely hated each other. It was like a, a dog and a cat being introduced. You know, it's like, we, because I could look at him. He's the, he's the, the suit that is going to want to tell me what to do. And he was like, he's a creative they're, they're creative, crazy person, irresponsible, irresponsible that he's not going to want to do what's right for the business, right? And, and we hated each other, but when we started to work together, we felt like, oh, he can actually sell my stuff. And felt like, yeah, he can actually do things that I can sell. So we, we professionally connected in, in a brilliant way. And when I sold my company to the same company that bought his, a week before he started AKQA, he thought, all right, so we started to joke and maybe we could, we, we sold our companies the same one, maybe we should do something together. And, the, and it was kind of that little joke that kind of came with a, like a, an elbow hit on the, the ribs and for like, yeah, yeah, the other, hit, you, the other one hits the, your, your ribs back with the elbow and they kind of keep hitting each other and then all of a sudden oh, you realize that it's serious. And then for like, would you do it? For, yeah, and then, then we did it. So it was the the difficult part was finding that person that I trusted that was complementary to me that that were the 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 yin to my yang they were like that they were I'm very self aware in terms of the things that I suck so mm -hmm. I needed to find who is the person that that is brilliant in the things that I suck the most and that's when I found um, my partner that is you know been doing this thing together for. Uh, 13 years now and, and it's great. We work really well together because we're so different. Beautiful. I think one of the hardest parts when you want to start a business is actually finding a partner. So I think you were very lucky to have found somebody in the same company with you. But PJ, we made it. <laughs> we're almost at the end of this episode. And I wanted to invite you to give a word of advice to all the immigrants or resident aliens, all the people that are just starting their own journey in a new country. So if you could give any advice to them, what would that be? Biggest lessons that I learned as an immigrant is that one, you're stronger than you think you are. It's like the, 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 the challenge of being an immigrant in the beginning is going to make you work so hard and you're going to, to surprise yourself with your own strength. Don't let that, don't lose that after you, you, you go through the first round of hurdles because that energy, that, that bite, if you keep it, you can, it can be valuable forever. But a lot of, I've seen a lot of people go through that and then relax and feel like, I don't need that, that, that energy anymore. And they leave behind and then, then they cannot, they, they, they miss the opportunity of using that, that, that power to to other challenges in their lives and and they have there in them and they they just lose it the other part is that we are in such a complicated world 
And we as immigrants have a, a very unique opportunity of being from two realities, because by definition, that's what we're going through. We, we, have, we are resetting our lives and we are living a different reality that the, the privileges and the, the setbacks that we used to have are all new. So we can actually be more aware than anyone else than any other group of the things that we lost and the things that we gained and how uh, the idea of a privilege is what the privileges are and what a privilege is. So we can make be a very important element on this discussion, very, very important presence in this world right now to help people understand differences and, and open a dialogue because we can see the transformation in a way that, that very few groups can, because we have had some things that we lost instead of having lived with things that the other groups don't understand and the other, and, and they don't understand our struggle. We don't understand theirs. So it all starts with, with the, the self-awareness that your problem your, the, the rest of the world is totally unaware of your problems, your new problems. And if you talk about them, most people are going to be kind and they're going to be generous and they're going to help you with them, but you have to voice them. Mm -hmm. Now, BJ, if you could think about an immigrant that you look up to, who would that be? It could be a famous person, somebody close to you, just somebody you, you look up to that you admire. I'm just curious who that is. I still get very close to tears every time I remember uh, the Kamala Harris this, uh, speech, mm. accepting speech, because not because of her. I'm, I'm, I'm my politics lean towards her side anyway, but it's not. It wasn't that day. It wasn't because of of uh, her politics. It was because of the 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 day the the pride with which she spoke was a the one of the biggest ahas in my life in terms of the responsibility that I, I should take and that I should have and that I should take actually take very seriously that that immigrants that have a level of success in their careers in their lives need to speak up, need to to to, to wear it with pride. I know the next thing I when I that ended and I stopped crying. I went to Amazon and I bought a, a shirt that said immigrant <laughs> and I wear, it's like my favorite t-shirt that I wear all the time because I want people to know that I'm, that I'm an immigrant. I know other immigrants to see, okay, this is a place that, that can, that allow people to, to thrive in. And I'm open to give advice to anyone that is coming behind me and, and taking, taking, taking part of their responsibility as well. So I think that that's, that speech, that moment in time of a, a, a daughter of an immigrant, just like my son is, being elected vice president of this country was a, a life-changing moment for me. So now we're really getting to the end of it. And as we close, and this will become a tradition at Adoptive Citizen, every single guest will be asked this I'm going to ask you a couple of immigrant questions, all right? Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's do it. What is the purpose of your stay in the United States? Yeah, that's that's when I start to have like those, oh, okay, now I'm going to that room, to the, this, the room on the side, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
I, I came to work. I, I came to run away from violence in Brazil and to and because I wanted to to have a chance to work with the with the decision makers in the marketing field. They're all most of them are in the US, so I wanted to work directly with them. All right. Second question. Where do you live in the United States? Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, that is a place that I, I picked once because I moved to, I, I spent 12 years in, in San Francisco, California. And then I, I just recently moved to, to the East Coast to, to, to be closer to our New York office. So my partner stayed in San Francisco, stayed in, in New York. And I picked Greenwich because it was the, the, the place where I could live kind of more open, close. The, the furthest I could go from the city was still commute every day and then then four months later the whole commute idea became a thing of the past i'm kind of trying to understand what this east coast life is going to be uh and and it's funny because no one knows but i'm actually enjoying these this new life the place not the covid mm -hmm. And the final question, what is your immigration status? I've been a citizen for, I think, seven years, seven or eight years. Uh, this was my second presidential election. Um, very, very proud to vote and to be part of the, the process. And, and it's funny, it's another thing that I don't know if people, that some, sometimes people take for granted the, the ability of putting your vote in the ballot and, and uh, it's... I, I choked up both times. I feel like this is such a big moment that, that we're going through, not only because of the importance of those particular elections, but the the the, the simple fact that you're you're interfering, you're making your choice, you're letting your voice be heard. You should not take that for granted. And I think that what's the 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 what's been happening in the country kind of the last few weeks. Uh, make it even more important and more relevant. And, and regardless of what you believe, and if, you, if the person who got elected is the person that you chose or not, the 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 honor and the privilege of being able to influence the decision process is is and should be sacred, sacred and should be more uh, valuable and, and preserved above any any personal preference and, and your judgment if the person in power is a person that you think is a good or a bad person. PJ, I can't thank you enough for being my first guest in my first episode of my very first podcast. Um, it's been such a long time coming project and I'm happy that I was able to share this experience with you for the first time. I'm sure a lot of the people will be inspired by just how what an open book you've been. And I hope more people will come and share their stories here because the more successful stories we tell about immigrants, the more people will be aware of just how amazing immigrants are and what are the amazing things that we can do in whatever country we decide to live in. So thank you. No, it's my, my honor and thank you so much for, for having me. As I said, it became a big part of my identity is a recent developed my identity, kind of a taking and really wearing my immigrant status and being able to help other immigrants became a, like a, a part of my task, the things that I need to do in life. And, and so the opportunity of talking and helping other adoptive citizens, I love the name by the way, that, that 
to, to realize this, their, their struggle is not only theirs and, and other people are going through and there's a chance, there are lots of opportunities. Kind of, there's a light on the other side of that tunnel if you want to take one of those cliches. Is that it, there is, and the light is very bright and beautiful and there are lots of opportunities on the other side and, and I hope that they can go through the first round of hurdles so they can have a chance to enjoy it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the first episode of Adoptive Citizen. If you've liked the stories we shared today and you'd like to follow more, please subscribe to this podcast. In the next episode, we'll hear the story of an immigrant mom, wife, and successful global leader of one of the most loved QSRs in America. So stay tuned. There's more to come.